0: All right, you can go ahead and have a seat for a moment. So uh, I'm going to introduce and welcome up our, new, our next speaker. Uh, and uh, it's crazy because I've only gotten to know him more recently. We actually, he spoke at a CMU years and years and years ago. Uh, and it was his first experience with us. And at that time, I think there was probably, I don't know, 60 or 70 people at that CMU. And over the years, I've gotten to see him from afar and watch people grow in respect for Jonathan. And I've gotten to see, uh, I know he comes from a background also of campus ministry, so he identifies well with us. But uh, he has an incredibly good gift at communicating the Word of God. And, uh, and so I'm really hoping that today that we can really pay attention to what he has to say, that we can open up our ears and we can hear God's Word coming through him and that it will change and impact our lives. And so let's go ahead and welcome Jonathan up, and I'll pray with him. But uh, this is Jonathan Stormont. All right, we're going to pray. He, he might need a little extra prayer. <laughs> uh, Father heaven, uh, thank you so much for uh, just uh, letting us be here together, God, to uh, learn from your word, God, that uh, we can uh, fellowship together, we can worship together, God, and we get to really listen to your word bespoke, God. And uh, we know that when we hear your word and we apply it, incredibly powerful things always happen, God. So help us to turn our hearts and our ears towards you as Jonathan talks today. And, God, we can uh, we can take notes, we can take it seriously, but we can write it on our hearts, God, so that when we walk out of here, we are more equipped to change the world for you. So, God, just thank you for Jonathan being here in spite of uh, bad circumstances in some ways, God, but uh, he's uh, fighting through because he's a faithful man for you, and he uh, longs to see your kingdom grow, God. So thank you for him, and uh, just bless, uh, bless this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: So the bad circumstances he's talking about is, uh, well, you know, Mackie was super transparent last night. You know how like when you throw up, when you got a stomach ache, you know the opposite of that? Yeah, that's what I got going on. So <laughs> um, I had an article, by the way, I'm so grateful to be here. I'm a big fan of what CMU is doing, and I love the way you guys are taking the way of Jesus seriously it's an honor to get to be a part of this um, because I'm not feeling well. My team from Pleasant Valley, the team that I came with, just to exp- expose them to y'all, they're going to be here, but I need to be in bed next to a toilet for the rest of the day. But a couple of things. Months ago, I got some articles sent to me from people all over the political divide, from all over the country. I've worked at a lot of different kinds of churches. I've been involved in a lot of different kinds of churches, and one of the things that stood out to me was how everybody was sending me this Democrats, Republicans, white people, black people, conservatives, progressives, everybody. It was an article from The Atlantic, and it was just saying this one big thing America's churches are not Christological. They are sociological, which is a fancy way of saying there's nothing there. There's nothing really there. Uh, see if you can recognize who said this. This is a real quote. Um, if you could go to the next one. The national government will maintain and defend, this is a politician, the na- national government will maintain and defend the foundations on which the power of our nations rests. It will offer strong protection to Christianity as the very basis of our collective morality. We want to fill our culture again with the Christian spirit. We want to burn out all the recent immoral developments in literature and entertainment and in the press. In short, we want to burn out the poison of immorality, which has entered into our whole life and culture as a result of liberal excess during the recent years. Any ideas? Adolf Hitler. In the 1930s, it was a radio address after he had won the Christian vote in Germany, whatever that means. Um, you may or may not know this, but in Germany, there was a, uh, Hitler let people keep doing church. He was fine with it. The problem with church, well, the only thing he said was you did a couple things. You cannot say that Jesus was a Jew, and you cannot preach from the Old Testament. And one of the guys, Karl Barth, who was leading the Confession Church, which said, you don't get to decide who Jesus is, Hitler. Karl Barth, the next Sunday after those rules came down, wrote a sermon called Jesus Was a Jew, and he mailed it to Hitler. And then he moved to Switzerland, but still he did that. And Karl Barth used to start every class. He taught... A seminary for preachers, training preachers that they called schools of death because they knew in a way that maybe we have forgotten that this thing might cost us something. And Karl Barth used to open every class, not with the Bible, but with a brilliant atheist named Fuhrbach. Fuhrbach's greatest insight, and I think about Fuhrbach all the time, his greatest insight a few hundred years ago was that this whole thing is made up. You made up God, and the reason you made up God is because you're scared. You're scared of dying. So you invented a God that promised you life after death. You made up God because you feel so insignificant. So you made a God who's all-powerful, who says he cares for you. Feuerbach says, basically, there is no God. What we do is we make God in our own image, and that's what we call religion. And Karl Barth didn't argue this. He opened up his class, every class, and said, this is the beginning of wisdom and the true departure of Christian thought. Because if you want a God that you made up, you do not want the Christian God. If you want a God that you made up, you do not want a God who says things like, if you want to know how well you love me, look at how well you love your enemies. You know, the thing about those Nazis is they weren't just powerful. They didn't just win elections. They were cool. They had infiltrated all of the institutions, the Boy Scouts, popular music, popular culture. They had infiltrated everything. People wanted to be Nazis, not because they were powerful, but because they were cool. And that's what makes me love this picture. Some of you have seen this before. <clears throat> the year is 1936. And the guy in the with the circle around him, his name is August. It's a Nazi rally. <clears throat> and everybody is falling all over themselves just to salute Hitler because Hitler's there that day, except for this guy. He doesn't fall all over himself. And he has no way, by the way, this guy's name is August. He has no way of knowing how human history is going to play out. He doesn't know that one day Nazis are going to look like monsters. He has no way of knowing he's going to look like a boss for the rest of history. He just knows there's some things he can't go along with. And on this cool spring, April day, he decides what one of those things was. Because you don't get to make this stuff up. So y'all are in the book of Revelations this weekend, and Revelation is one of the weirdest books in the whole Bible. It almost didn't make the Bible. It has gotten all kinds of stuff. How many of y'all have seen Left Behind? Okay, quite a few. Which one, the Kirk Cameron or the Nicolas Cage? Yeah, the fact that there's two different kinds of left behind lets you know what kind of uh, book uh, uh, Revelation is. <clears throat> Did you guys hear about Japanese uh, um, prime minister getting assassinated? Okay, that just happened. Does it feel like to anybody else? I mean, think about the last few months, couple of years. We've got plague and World War III or Civil War and political assassinations, and I think the Cubs won a World Series in the last seven years. So does it feel like the end of the world or the last days to anybody? Why don't we pair up, turn to each other and pair up and answer that question. You can answer it yes or no, or I hate it when they make us do something like this, but you got to answer something. is in the last days. Okay, we got like a small percentage, all right, over there. Um, You know, Peter, it seemed like the first Christians thought that we were in the last days, right? Peter stands up in his first sermon as God is pouring out his spirit on the last days. How many of y'all are sports fans? How many of y'all have been asked by a non-sports fan how much time is left in the game? And you say something like, just two minutes, because that's what it says on the time, right? And, and that person hears what? 120 seconds. But that is not how, and then they come back like 45 minutes later and they're like, what about? It's like there's a different way of clocking time. And by the way, this should make sense to us. Because God, how do you measure time? You measure time with the sun and the stars and the amount of times this ball of dirt we're on goes around the sun. We measure time with things God made. So the one who made all of that stands outside of that. And so when this letter is coming, it's not promising the last days, at least the way you think it. Because that's what we do. Human beings, we're so anxious. We want to get control of something. So we read this and we're like, well, actually, if you carry the one and you add just a touch of crazy and you, then, you, then you get the world is going to end on. And they, we have for the last few hundred years predicted almost every year is going to be the end of the world. Do you know Hitler actually used Revelation for his justification for the Third Reich? So yeah, this book can go off the rails pretty quick. But this is what the book is actually doing it's why I love what y'all are doing this week. Look at this in Revelation chapter one starting in verse 9 I John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom of the patient endurance that ours is in Jesus Christ. I'm on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's on Patmos because he got in trouble with Rome. He's on Patmos because he's in exile but he's on Patmos because they know that they figured out that if you kill Christians, especially leaders, it spreads the message, it doesn't quench the message. Those so they decided they can't kill him, they're gonna put him on an island. What can he do on an island? Well, he can get a vision from God. So on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard a loud voice say, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Thardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. In other words, revelation isn't first written To you. It's written to these seven churches. Like right out of the gate, you need to know. It was trying to help these people understand what was gonna happen. And I turned around and I saw that the voice was speaking to me. I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstand was someone like a, a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, white as a snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, remember this, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And then I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed <clears throat> he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades which by the way is what Rome thought they held. Write what you have seen. This is the mystery of the seven stars. The seven stars are the seven churches and the seven lampstands of the seven churches. The seven lampstands or the seven candles or seven candlesticks. He's writing because the light of the world is hinging on these seven little communities, So John is in trouble, he's in Patmos, he's on an island, he's all alone, and he gets a word from the Lord. And it's Jesus that shows up, but it's not the Jesus he hung out with for three years. It's Jesus with like, you'll find out later, tattoos written down his leg, his knuckles are dripping with blood, but never forget it it is his own blood those knuckles are dripping with. That's how Jesus saves us. His, he's, tatt, he's tatted up. He's got these sashes. His eyes are glowing. And John, when he sees him, he falls. He's terrified of what he's seeing. He throws himself at Jesus' feet as though dead. <clears throat> I heard a preacher, uh, a writer named Rich Mao tell a story about how when he was five years old, he was in kindergarten. And this, there was a special guest that day. A man who came around every December wearing a red and white suit who had a little bit of a belly on him, known for his laughter and jolliness, and also for his judgment. He wanted to put kids in his lap and find out if they'd been naughty or nice. And a lot of people who aren't parents think that when kids see, who am I talking about? When kids see Santa Claus, they are like super excited. But not the first time. My wife and I have five kids, because that's one way to live your life. The, the the first time your kids see Santa Claus, this is just a few random selections on the, um, this is what it looks like when your kids first see Santa Claus. Could you go to the next one? I love, I love that one. The, da- the dad looks like he's having trouble too. Like, I'm not trusting this guy. And then the next one, all three of them are like, get us out of here. I show you that to say most kids when they first see Santa Claus are terrified, and Rich Mal was too. He's terrified he's going to be put in Santa's lap, and he started to fight and cry, and then the Santa leans over and pulls down his beard and says, hey, Rich, it's me, Mr. Cooper from church. I'm helping Santa Claus out today. Don't worry. You're going to be fine. And Mr. Cooper was somebody that Rich liked and trusted a lot, and so he was fine, That's what's happening in Revelation. John falls at Jesus' feet. He sees this terrifying image of the thing that cannot be shaken, the thing of which is afraid of no one, the person who holds the keys of life and death, and then Jesus tells him, hey John, it's me. Remember, we went camping, we went fishing together. And throughout the book of Revelation, John is going to see some very strange stuff. He's going to use a lot of very strange stuff. He's going to talk a lot about symbols. And one of the important things to realize about the book of Revelation is that symbols are not real. Um, Matter of fact, he just described what that symbol was, candlestick. That's one of the only ones he does in the letter of Revelation. He tells you the candlesticks or the lampstands are the seven churches. Um, if, imagine if somebody came to your house, and they picked up your cookbook, and they started going through it, and, and they were like, ooh, extra vanilla, that, you know what that means? There's an, an impending economic crisis coming. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, look at that, look at that, add yeast. It means that the next four years of presidency are going to be horrible. You'd be, what are you talking about? You would know they're reading the cookbook wrong, because that's not what cookbooks are for, Right? And so much of this revelation is odd to us because we we don't think about how we talk about this already. Imagine if somebody came to St. Louis in 3,022, 1,000 years from now, it's all rubble, you know, there's none of us around and they're digging through our stuff and they see two different political parties, one's represented by an elephant and one's represented by a what? Right, what would they think? They'd assume Americans are training their animals for some weird stuff Okay, so I don't know a better way to describe to you what what, um, Revelation is doing than this picture. This is a coin. It says, uh, this is saying Caesar is Lord on the front of it. And this is Caesar's deceased son. Caesar had just started saying that he was God in the flesh. So this would be the son of God. And do you see what he's holding in his hands? Seven stars. Back in the day, uh, this is pre-Galileo, when they talked about the universe, they talked about the seven planets. They didn't know, you know, Pluto, and now we're getting rid of Pluto, so maybe they were right and we were wrong. But anyway, they didn't know about that. And so this is the way they talked about the whole known universe. And when John is trying to say to the seven churches, when Jesus is trying to communicate to John, he's telling us, no, Caesar isn't in charge. Jesus is. In fact, look back, is that still on there? And uh, Can you go to the next one? In his right hand, Jesus holds seven stars coming out of his mouth with a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So basically what Revelation is doing is not saying just stuff about the future. In fact, most of Revelation is not about the future. It's about the present and how the churches are called to live in to the ultimate reality that Jesus is king right now. And what stands out to me is that Jesus addresses the churches, not Rome, not Nero. He addresses this really small group of Christians. You know, this should mean something to you. Because Jesus, if he's talking to us today, he's not riding Disney. He's not riding General Motors. He's not riding Washington, D.C., He's writing and addressing the church of Jesus Christ, which is the body of Christ, and it is his bride. And that brings us to our text for this morning, which is Revelation 2, verse 1. This is the first letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor: you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. <laughs> I don't know if I said that right. That sounds more like Nickelodeon. Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious—that's a big word in Revelation—I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise. Of God. Now, a couple of these things. On the outside looking in, this church is rocking. This is the church that people are talking about around there. Smyrna is next, and I don't want to step on Adam's toes, but they're known for, it's, it's known for being poor and suffering. But Jesus says, actually, you're rich and you're doing great. This is what happens when, Jesus really, when you don't get to make up this God. Because this God addresses churches and he says, actually, it looks this way, but in reality, it's that way. One of the biggest things in the Book of Revelation is that the nobodies are sometimes somebodies, and the some the people who are awesome might be nobodies. Uh, Revelation—that word just means unveiling. It's letting you see the truth that was already there. Now, Ephesus, this church is a famous church that started in a famous city. If you if you want to learn more about this church, go back to Acts nineteen. It starts with a mob. Actually, it kicks off with a riot. <clears throat> Paul goes to Ephesus. He starts preaching against uh, idols and. Oh, excuse me, guys. Give me a second. <clears throat> Paul goes to Ephesus and he starts preaching against the idols. And um, there's a riot and it's crazy. It's mass chaos. And they, there's a revival. They burn all these like wizard books. And this is more than like repenting from Harry Potter. These are like first century um, sorcerer books where, where spells like this. You take a slave boy... In order to make a love spell, you would take a slave boy, you would bury him up to his neck, and you would place three plates of delicious food in front of him every day until he starved to death while looking at that food. And then you would use his bones to make your love spell. That's what magic, what they're talking about. So they realize Jesus is Lord and this stuff has got to go. So they burn all these books. It's this beautiful time of repentance. And then there's this like hilarious story where in Acts 19, God does so many extraordinary miracles that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now some Jews went around driving out evil spirits trying to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would come and they would say, in the name of the Lord Jesus... Whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil priest answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them all, this is so amazing, guys. How funny is this? He gave them all such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding, which is a sign you just got your butt kicked by some demons, You run out of the house naked and bleeding. Think about this. They're like, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches about, get out of it. And this demon's like the Jimmy Hoffa of the New Testament. He's like, you talking to me? You talking to me? And he beats up these guys. And here's why. Actually, Mackie, can you help me? Can you read these passages? Like, can you read this quote so I can take a break and drink some water? Yeah. Here's what Tim Keller says. This is what Tim Keller says.
2: The power of Jesus Christ is not magic. It's not mechanical. It's kingly power. Unless you're submitting to his name, there is no power. Christian friends, if you're asking for help, if you're invoking Jesus' name and you're asking for help and you're asking for strength, but you're not enjoying him and you're not obeying him, that's just magic. The name of Jesus is not mechanical power. It's not abstract power. It's not magical power. It's kingly power. It doesn't work (laughs) without submission. Crown me or kill me, Jesus says. He confronts. Thank you, Mackie. So this is hard. It can only be done with the
1: Spirit's help, but it can be done. And here's what I want you to see. This church would have been on the front page of our magazines. They're orthodox, they're standing for the faith, they're you know, doing stuff, they're, but they're lost and they're dying and they just don't know it. They're fighting false doctrine, they're keeping heresy away, and they're lost. Why? Because they stop letting Jesus be their first love. This is the point of the church of Ephesus. And it's a, it's a point that every church needs to grapple with seriously. Loving Jesus is more important than the implications of loving Jesus. And it's not even close. Let me say that again. You might wanna write that down. Loving Jesus is more important than the implications of loving Jesus. And it's not even close. This is the Mary and Martha story of the letter of Revelation. And the reason this is so important is because Jesus is the only one who gets to tell the church what success is. Here's what you need to hear. This can be an encouragement. Jesus is watching. He's watching now. He has not abandoned us. He's watching what we do and what we don't do and why we do it. Jesus sees our acts of service. He, he, and that alone should make us serve differently. Rome doesn't see these people. But Jesus does. And I'd like you to consider your life today. And what would he say to you? I know your works. Would he say that to you? A lot of you have devoted yourself to the church. You serve God by serving the hope of the world. And there's no way around. that. That's a, that's a weight sometimes. So many of you have probably led a, a cross chat or a, a small group and you've gone through the heartbreak of watching people walk away or you have a hard time getting people to see the vision you have for it or, or you feel the pain that just goes along with ministry. And sometimes you don't, you're not recognized for the stuff that you do, but Jesus sees it and It matters. But there's another factor too. Jesus tells this vibrant serving church in Ephesus, your calendar is full of great things, but you've lost your love and something in your heart has died. And this is sad because there was a time when this church love flowed like water. When Paul first started here for two years, he preached the gospel. And then when when he leaves, they're weeping for him. Now, many years later, Paul has died. It's the second generation, but this church has not cried in a while. There's been years and years since there were tears there. They're they're doing all the stuff. They're guarding against heresy. They're they're priding themselves on being doctrinally correct, but there hadn't been tears there for a long time. So this morning, I want to ask you, between you and God, how are y'all doing? Have you lost your first love? Have you replaced the implications for loving Jesus with, you know, Loving Jesus? And and here's some ways that you can sense that that might be true. Do you sense a spirit of resentment in you ever? Do you find yourself getting more and more critical or judgmental about stuff? Maybe you allow disunity or negative comments to exist in the church unchallenged, the church that Jesus Christ is watching and holds in his hand. Those are symptoms of losing a love because maybe that's what happens when your work for God becomes more important than your love for God. And so under the gaze of God this morning, under the eyesight of God, do you find that your faith has become more about the things you do than a relationship that gives you life? Loving Jesus is more important than the implication of loving Jesus and it's not even close. And we love him because he first loved us. So I grew up in church. I love the church. It it saved my life. It's changed my life. But one of the things that church people can sometimes do, and this is why Revelation is a really important read for us, is you can over-identify the church with Jesus. The church is the body of Christ. But it's here we learn that Jesus stands apart from the church and against the church if the church isn't manifesting his body well. The church is, Jesus has a word to say and it's not whatever you guys want. I think some of our churches need to put on the billboard keeping the Jones family happy for the last 50 years. As if that's the mission. No, The church is Jesus's. It's not ours. It doesn't get to be. In other words, we don't get to make this crap up. And whenever we try to, Jesus stands against us. Jesus stands above her. Jesus sometimes stands against her. The true measure of a church is not how her members view her. It is not how outsiders view her. It has been and always will be It's been from the beginning, how Jesus views her. And that is how you find the cojones on an April 1936 to cross your arms when everybody else is saluting. That's how you realize this is not something we invented. This is something we have inherited. This is a real living thing. We are embodying. We're called to be different in a world that makes so many enticing promises that, come on, can't we see by now they're lies? We're called to be love, real love, not the kind of hashtag love that doesn't mean anything but selfish gratification. Love in a world of hate. We're called to be justice in a world of oppression. We're called to be mercy in a world of unforgiveness and offense. In the language of revelation, we're called to be the bride of Christ in a world of drag because this is not our light. Church, whatever church you're at, this is not your light. And if we forget that, when we forget that, Jesus takes his light back. Some Christians listen to this. In 115 AD, after Revelation was written, the bishop of Smyrna, a guy named Polycarp, who was the bishop over all seven of those little churches, was like almost 90 years old. He was 86 years old. And the Roman government found out that he was a big guy in this religion they were trying to squash down. But he was loved by the community. So they didn't want to kill him. They just said, hey, just pretend and offer a little Caesar worship, just pinch an incense, and we don't want to kill you. And then he refused. And they drag him out to the Colosseums where they're gonna burn him at the stake. And they say to the Roman Colosseum, to the thousands of people watching, Polycarp leads the Christians who are the destroyers of our gods, which I think is a boss thing to get accused of. (laughs) And before they light the fire, here's what Polycarp says. Mackie, if you could read this one last thing. Read it like an old man who's a boss.
2: (laughs) Eighty and six years. I don't know what I'm doing. Eighty and six years. I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked and the judgment to come. What are you waiting for? Come, do what you will. Boom! Bring it on. Can
1: you imagine this? He's going to burn to death. There is feet and gasoline soaking his feet. And they've got the, and what's he say? Do your best. Is that all you got? Do you know why he does that? Because there is one bigger than Rome. Rome. There is a fire more big, deeper than their fire. So Polycarp looks thousands; he's 1 versus 20,000. And he's like, what a mismatch. Bring it. Bring what you will. And later, everybody who was watching, the Christians who were watching said, he was given a crown of life, which is the language of revelation. He surely was victorious. And then they said, they tried to blow out his candle. And they started a fire. Praise God. Let's stand and continue to worship.